Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the second and final part on the War of Italian Unification, 1859-1861. to On the evening of the 14th of January, 1858, the Emperor Napoleon III of France and his consort, the Empress Eugène, were being carried on a carriage through the streets of Paris to the theatre to see a play William Tell by the composer Rossini. Suddenly there was an explosion as a group of revolutionaries launched bombs at the imperial carriage. The first bomb landed among the horsemen in front of the carriage. The second bomb wounded the animals and smashed the carriage glass. The third bomb landed under the carriage and seriously wounded a policeman who was hurrying to protect the occupants. Eight people were killed and 142 wounded, although the emperor and empress were unhurt. The leader of the conspiracy, Felice Orsini, was a well-known Italian Republican and supporter of the revolutionary Giuseppe Mazzini. He used his ensuing trial to passionately air the cause of Italian freedom and even wrote an appeal direct to Napoleon, urging him to liberate the peninsula. It ended, quote, Remember that, so long as Italy is not independent, the peace of Europe and your majesty is but an empty dream. Set my country free, and the blessings of 25 million people will follow you everywhere, forever." Orsini's calm dignity as he went to the guillotine was widely admired. Perhaps surprisingly, 
Napoleon, whose popularity was increased by the incident, chose to support his would-be assassin's campaign. He had a genuine love for Italy, where he had grown up, but also had a self-interested reason to get involved, for he needed a popular war to strengthen his own position at home and that of France internationally. In July the same year, he met secretly with Camillo Cavour, Chief Minister of Piedmont, at the small health resort of Plombier-Liban, where agreement was quickly reached. They both agreed on the need to push the Habsburgs completely out of the peninsula. Piedmont would goad Austria into war by engineering a quarrel with the Duke of Modena and sending troops. Austria would be bound to support the Duke and to declare war, and Piedmont would then appeal to France for aid. In return, she would cede to France the county of Savoy and the coastal city of Nice. In the discussions, Napoleon, concerned not to lose the support of the Catholic Church, insisted that Pope Pius IX would be left in possession of the city of Rome, protected by a French garrison. As for the King of Naples, he would be left unmolested so long as he did not attempt to aid the Austrians. There would then be four states on the peninsula, a kingdom of Upper Italy under the House of Savoy, Rome and its surrounding area would be left to the papacy, while the remaining province of the Papal States would be absorbed by Tuscany to form a kingdom of central Italy, while the kingdom of the two Sicilies, i.e. Naples and Sicily, would continue unchanged. However, none of this plan could be implemented without a suitable pretext for war. How to provoke Austria into war while pretending reluctance to fight? Another difficulty was that there was little enthusiasm for the war in Lombardy. There was widespread suspicion that Piedmont was more interested in conquest than liberation, and after a repressive period in the early 1850s, Austrian rule had become more tolerant. Also, the British, although generally sympathetic to the idea of Italian unification, were likely to be opposed to a conflict that looked like a simple land grab. With public opinion in France opposed to a war and under diplomatic pressure from Britain, Napoleon lost his nerve and suggested delaying the campaign for a year. When in March 1859 the great powers of Europe suggested a conference to discuss the situation, Cavour was furious and rushed to Paris. He found Napoleon deeply dejected and no longer interested in war. Back in his capital of Turin, and with international pressure mounting for de-escalation, Cavour was finally forced to agree to disarm. What he did not know was that the imperial court in Vienna, convinced they would have to fight at some time, and concerned about their prestige in Italy if they failed to respond to intimidations from Piedmont, had dispatched an ultimatum to Turin. The Habsburg Emperor, Franz Josef, made the decision based upon the belief that in case of war, the German Confederation and perhaps Prussia, would join him against France. For the Piedmontese, the timing of the ultimatum was a great stroke of luck. At the same time as Cavour had agreed to disarm, Austria had cast itself in the role as the bullying aggressor, and so forfeited international sympathy and support. Cavour was euphoric. 
Piedmont was given three days to reply, during which time preparations were made with the army and the king granted full emergency powers. And Napoleon immediately ordered his armed forces to move from their staging posts to Italy. There was 120,000 men, one section would enter the peninsula across the Alps, while the rest were sent by sea to Genoa. The French soldiers were uniformly equipped with the Minier rifle, which could fire rapidly with the lethal accuracy up to 1600 metres. The design of their bullets allowed more rapid loading and was an innovation that brought about the widespread use of the rifle as the main battlefield weapon for individual soldiers. The French were also equipped with the latest in artillery. The new rifled guns were a considerable improvement over the previous smooth bore guns. They were able to shoot at 3,000 metres either regular shells, ball-loaded shells or grape shot. The key for the Piedmontese army was to be able to hold out long enough, a week or two, for the larger French army to arrive. It was a daunting prospect, but fortunately for them, was saved by a combination of torrential rains and Austrian indecision. The Austrian field marshal, Ferenc Gudiai, was a solid administrator, but a reluctant field commander. Even after the ultimatum was refused, the Austrians did not move for the next three days. Guillet failed to take advantage of the vulnerability of the Piedmontese capital, Turin, which might have capitulated to a decisive Austrian attack. The reasons are unclear, but it may be that Guillet and his staff believed that a diplomatic arrangement was still possible. And so it was only on the 29th of April, six days after the ultimatum, that the Austrian advance guard crossed the river Ticino to begin a lethargic advance towards Turin. Unfortunately for them, very heavy rains began to fall, allowing the Piedmontese to flood the rice fields in front of his advance, slowing his army's march to a crawl. The Austrians captured Navarra on the 30th of April and Vercelli on the 2nd of May, and advanced on Turin. Napoleon III landed with the French forces at Genoa on the 12th of May, and arrived in Alessandria on the 14th of May, taking the command of the operations. In the month of May, the Franco-Piedmontese forces achieved small but morale-boosting victories at Montebello on the 20th of May, driving the enemy back across the river Ticino. Rumours of an Austrian rout encouraged the peoples of Massa and Carrara on the western coast south of Genoa to appeal to the Piedmontese for assistance against their rulers. Demonstrations also broke out in Parma and Florence and other cities in Tuscany, leading to the Grand Duke Leopold II and his family to flee his duchy. The provincial government in Florence offered the Piedmontese king their loyalty. It was on the 4th of June that the first decisive battle took place at Magenta, a small village some 14 miles west of Milan. Napoleon's army crossed the Ticino River and outflanked the Austrian right, forcing the Austrian army under General Gulai to retreat. The result was a victory for the Franco-Piedmontese alliance, although casualties were high on both sides. 
Incidentally, a dye producing the colour magenta was discovered in the same year and was named after this battle. Although the Austrian army had retreated in good order, General Gulai tamely evacuated Milan. Four days later, Napoleon and Victor Emmanuel triumphantly entered the Lombard capital. Their entry was heralded by a proclamation on the 5th of June to the people of Milan, urging them to place their trust in Victor Emmanuel and to enlist in his army. After the Battle of Magenta, the Allies were joined by Garibaldi, who was invited by Victor Emmanuel to assemble a brigade, and he won a victory over the Austrians some ten days later at Varese, in northwestern Lombardy. The king's decision to bring Garibaldi on board was important for public relations, but the general had to be handled carefully. He had to be allowed to lead men in battle if the government wanted to make the most of his reputation. But both Cavour and Victor Emmanuel were wary about stoking insurrections which could get out of control, or allowing him to amass too much personal glory and so overshadow their own achievements. The Austrians under Field Marshal Gurier retreated east to the quadrilateral fortresses in Lombardy, where he was relieved of his post as commander, and Emperor Franz Josef took personal control of his troops. The largest battle of the war took place on the 24th of June 1859 by the small town of Soloferino in the province of Mantua in Lombardy. It was the last major battle in world history where all the armies were under the personal command of their monarchs, namely Napoleon III, Victor Emmanuel and Franz Josef. Between 250,000 and 300,000 soldiers fought in total, the largest number since the Battle of Leipzig in 1813. The two sides were evenly matched numerically with about 130,000 Austrian troops and a combined total of 140,000 French and Piedmontese troops. On June 22nd, the Franco-Piedmontese armies and Austrian armies separately marched to the river Mincio, each unaware that they were advancing along the same route and converging around the town of Soloferino. The battlefield was divided into two distinct geographic features, around which separate actions took place. The town of Solferino is on the eastern side of a small mountain with a tower and medieval walls. Just south of Solferino, the land opens into the broad plain of Campo di Medole. Very early in the morning of the 24th of June, the French advance cavalry pushed the opposing Austrian divisions back to Solferino. For the next three hours, intense fighting took place for control of the town, which the French finally captured. A separate engagement took place at the same time in the northern part of the Campo di Medore, which again was won by the French. Further to the south in another engagement, neither side was able to gain an advantage. At the same time, the Piedmontese army clashed with a much smaller Habsburg force to the north around the town of San Martino. The Piedmontese army failed to take advantage of their superior numbers. Despite attempts at reform, they still demonstrated many of the deficiencies that had handicapped them 
1849 when fighting against Austria. In addition, Victor Emmanuel insisted on being commander-in-chief, but lacked military experience and only managed to create confusion. An artillery barrage and concerted infantry assault might have compelled the Austrians to retreat, yet much of the artillery was stationed too far away to be of use, and infantry brigades, instead of combining in a massed attack, took it in turns to advance, charging with a bayonet and failing to break through. The Austrians were therefore able to ward off the enemy attacks, inflicting heavy losses upon the attackers. The Austrian commander, Benedek, was ordered to retreat with the rest of the Austrian army, but ignored the order and kept resisting. Late in the evening, a fourth Piedmontese assault finally captured the contested hills, and Benedek then withdrew. The main Piedmontese contribution in the overall battle consisted in keeping Benedek's corps engaged throughout the day and preventing them sending reinforcements to attack the French in the engagement in Solferino. The Habsburg army withdrew in good order, first to the east bank of the river Mincio, and then returned to the security of the quadrilateral, i.e. the four great fortresses of Peschiera, Verona, Legnano and Mantua. As often the case with close battles, where both sides believe they could achieve victory, casualties were extremely heavy on both sides. The Piedmontese had some 5,000 killed or wounded. The French lost slightly more than twice that number, and the Austrians suffered some 22,000 killed or wounded. Jean-Henri Dunan, who witnessed the aftermath of the battle in person, was so shocked by the horrific suffering of wounded soldiers left on the battlefield that he began a campaign that would eventually result in the establishment of the International Red Cross in 1863. Nor was Dunan the only one to be sickened by what he saw at Solferino. Napoleon III had been profoundly shocked, and this was one of the reasons why, little more than a fortnight after the battle, he made a separate peace with Austria. A variety of circumstances moved the Emperor to go back on his original agreement with Piedmont. The removal of the Austrian armies by force from the quadrilateral would be no easy task, and he was fearful of Prussian intervention. In addition, several of the smaller states, notably Tuscany, Romagna, Modena and Parma, were in the process of overthrowing their rulers and considering annexation to Piedmont. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. 
Napoleon's original plan had been to help Piedmont take over her immediate neighbours in northern Italy, not to set about the formation of a unified Italy, a powerful new state just over the French border. And so, on the 11th of July, 1859, the emperors of France and Austria met at Villafranca, near Verona, to decide the fate of northern and central Italy. Austria would keep two of the fortresses of the Quadrilateral, Mantua and Peschiera, and surrender the rest of Lombardy to France, who would pass it on to Piedmont. The former orders of Tuscany and Modena would be restored to their rulers, and an Italian confederacy would be established under the honorary presidency of the Pope. Cavour was furious at the agreement, and after a long and acrimonious interview with Victor Emmanuel, he submitted his resignation. Over the next months, however, it became clear that the people of Tuscany and Modena refused to accept the fate prescribed for them and to see the return of their former rulers. In Florence, Bologna, Parma and Modena, local governors took control, all determined to join Piedmont. In January 1860, Cavour was recalled to take over a new government. The Treaty of Villafranca marked a critical turning point in his thinking on the Italian question. He had initially embarked on the campaign against Austria as part of a policy of expansion with Piedmont, but he now began to actively embrace the idea of national unification. He quickly reached a new agreement with Napoleon. Piedmont would annex Tuscany, Parma, Modena and Romagna, and in return Savoy and Nice would be handed over to France. Plebiscites were held in all of these states, and in every one the majority in favour of the arrangement was overwhelming. Meanwhile, in Sicily, preparations were underway for a new uprising. In early April, a revolt broke out in Palermo, which quickly spread, fuelled by peasant grievances over land and taxation, local factional struggles and antipathy towards the rule from Naples. However, the Bourbon forces began to regain control later in the month. The rebels urged Garibaldi to join them. At first he was reluctant, uncertain, that the rising was extensive enough to succeed. Only at the end of April did he finally decide to make the move and sailed on a steamship to the island with the famous 1,000. In fact, just over 1,000 volunteers. Cavour was in a dilemma. Despite the fact that many of the volunteers with Garibaldi were supporters of Mazzini, the thousand announced from the outset their wish to cooperate with Piedmont with their slogan, Italy and Victor Emmanuel. But if Garibaldi was able to conquer Sicily, cross over to Naples and then on to Rome, Piedmont's position as the guiding force in the Italian national question was at risk. On the face of it, Garibaldi's venture appeared to stand little chance of success, and Cavour did what he could behind the scenes to make it more difficult, blocking a consignment of ammunition and British rifles, so they had to make do with inferior weapons. 
the Neapolitan king, Francesco II, did not take the expedition seriously, believing it one more in a series of recently failed adventures. King Ferdinand had died the previous year, and his son was young, timid and inexperienced, and his kingdom had no allies except for Austria, which was no longer in a position to help. But Garibaldi's men were able to land safely at Masala, on the west coast of Sicily, and through a combination of good luck and inspired leadership, to advance inland and defeat a force of Bourbon soldiers sent to block their route at the small town of Calatafermi. News of this success rekindled the uprisings in the countryside, and throughout the island, local administration began to crumble, with government officials and landowners being assaulted or even killed. There were no more obstructions for Garibaldi's men before the island's capital, Palermo. On the contrary, thousands of Sicilians rallied behind him and he quickly gained control of the city. Boosted by substantial reinforcements from northern Italy, Garibaldi continued his advance and in July captured Messina, the last remaining Bourbon stronghold on the island. The city itself fell without a struggle, although the garrison held out for a little longer in the citadel. On the mainland in Calabria, Garibaldi found the opposition even more feeble than in Sicily. Although the Neapolitan generals had 16,000 soldiers in the toe of Italy, they put up little resistance. Cavour tried to take control of the situation by staging an insurrection in Naples ahead of Garibaldi, but through a combination of poor organisation and mistrust of Piedmont, it failed to happen. King Francesco fled in panic to the fortified city of Gaeta. When Garibaldi arrived in Naples by train on the 7th of September in advance of his army, he was met with scenes of extraordinary jubilation. From a balcony he saluted the crowds that gathered to greet him in front of the royal palace, proclaiming the age of tyranny to be over. Cavour was furious that events were out of his control and became concerned that Garibaldi was now in a position to conquer Rome. He tried to organise an insurrection in the Papal States, which again failed, and so ordered a military invasion. His pretext was that he needed to stop Garibaldi reaching Rome and thereby save the Pope from an army of dangerous revolutionaries. In reality, though, he wanted to retake the initiative, finish the war on a heroic note, and to make sure he could acquire Naples. Garibaldi's army headed towards Rome, but were met by a reorganised Neapolitan army of some 28,000, ranged along the bank of the river Roderturno. It was here that they suffered their first defeat since their landing in Sicily. There took place a series of confrontations, the largest one on the 1st of October, when both sides suffered over a thousand casualties. With Garibaldi pinned down on the Volaterno River and as Victor Emmanuel advanced south, it became clear that the political initiative was swinging in Piedmont's favour. The King's army overcame a spirited resistance at Perugia and defeated the Papal army at Ancona. Cavour pressed ahead with the annexation of the Papal States and put pressure on Garibaldi to hold a plebiscite in Naples and Sicily as soon as possible. 
The result was a resounding yes vote for unification. As for Garibaldi, his behaviour during the handover of power was irreproachable. He delivered to Victor Emmanuel the results of the plebiscite in the throne room of the Royal Palace in Naples. He asked for no reward and rejected the King's offers of money, estates, titles or a senior position in the regular army. He afterwards sailed off to his home on the small island of Caprera, off the north coast of Sardinia, with just a few packets of coffee and sugar, some dried cod and a bag of seeds. Over the months, the last pockets of resistance were mopped up. The defenders of Gaeta, where King Francesco was holed up, died in the hundreds from typhoid as well as artillery shells. When they surrendered, Francesco left with dignity, admitting he was a victim of his own inexperience. And so southern Italy became unified with the north thanks to an extraordinary combination of circumstances. Had Garibaldi not invaded Sicily, or had the rulers of Naples played their hand better, it is very possible it could have remained a separate state. But the Risorgimento happened to occur when Naples had weak leadership and after a period of reactionary rule, during which the kingdom became diplomatically isolated. The author David Gilmore writes, quote, The belief that Naples, unlike other countries in Western Europe, was incapable of evolving by itself is simply illogical. An example of the southern inferiority complex which was engendered by the triumphalism of the Risorgimento, end quote. On Passion Sunday, 17th of March, 1861, Victor Emmanuel II was proclaimed King of Italy by an Act of Parliament. Most of the peninsula was now united in one state, although Rome had to wait a little longer, with the Pope protected by French troops, as did the region of Venetia, with the capital of Venice, which was still under Austrian control. The first six months after unification were pivotal. During this period, the leaders of the new nation had to construct new systems of administration and political representation, an army, legal code and network of communications. Cavour remained at the heart of power and simply imposed on the peninsula a centralised political structure from above, based on that of the Piedmontese model. It was in many ways more a territorial expansion of Piedmont-Sardinia than unification of equal partners. Less than three months after the proclamation, on the 6th of June, Cavour died of a massive stroke at the age of just 50. His early demise was unfortunate for the new state. Writes David Gilmore, however unscrupulous in his dealings, he had been an outstanding politician, intuitive and energetic, capable of exploiting even the most unpromising of circumstances. The new nation that emerged in 1861 was the result of a largely unplanned series of events and a small number of remarkable individuals. A product of war, diplomacy and popular revolution carried out against all odds by a cast of often mutually hostile forces. Even with its shortcomings, the unification of Italy remains a remarkable achievement in a territory with a long history 
or political fragmentation. The Italian war also had a profound effect in Germany and Austria. Emperor Franz Josef's missteps had deprived him of allies at a crucial time, and the failure to carry out sufficient military reform and weak leadership among the leading generals led to defeats on the battlefield which were in no way inevitable. The result was a crisis for the Austrian Empire. Even before the war started, there was a run on the banks, and defeat destroyed any confidence in the regime. The emperor was forced to fire most of his court, to abandon his cherished neo-absolutism, and to attempt a programme of liberalisation to shore up his regime. Moreover, in Europe as a whole, the Italian victory promoted a sense of liberal triumphalism, the conviction that the tide of events in Europe was heading inexorably towards a modernity based on nationalism and constitutional government. It also produced a fresh wave of German national feeling. National liberals agitated for the abolition of the Confederation and the unification of Germany under a single national parliament. Events in Germany over the next years were to be no less profound in importance for the history of the continent of Europe than the unification of Italy. You've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. The music from today's episode was composed by Giuseppe Verdi. I hope you enjoyed. If you'd like to get in touch, please do so through the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash historyeurope. For $3 a month, you can get a little bit of extra material. Also listen to the episodes a week in advance and without the adverts. Next week, I'm going to move on to the Schleswig War of 1864, which was between the German Confederation and Denmark. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye.